Malachi is the last of 12 minor prophets. They're minor because they're smaller than the major prophets. And uh, if you're new to us, we've been going through each one of these minor prophets week by week as a whole, recognizing that this would have been given to God's people in one giant scroll uh, to be seen as one book where you have individual chapters about God's providence and his love for his people. I would, hope and reckon, I would hope to recognize that you would recognize that as each of these minor prophets has been unfolding before us, that God has been continually gracious to his people. In the midst of their sin, he has not been silent. In the midst of their rebellion, he has called them back to himself. And in the midst of their repentance, he has promised to bring one who would ultimately save them. We recognize that as the person of Christ Jesus, who died a death that these people deserve, that you and I deserve, so that we could stand before the Lord as the remnant, as what has been announced earlier, but one who have been justified by God's grace alone. So even from these minor prophets, this Old Testament, these long-ago words, it is the same gospel that is being preached to us this morning from God, from his word. However, the book of Malachi serves as a repeated six-stage rebuke against God's people. Again and again, he points out through various displays of his own anger of how they have royally messed up in his own midst. And you might go, wow, what did they do to receive such anger from the Lord? And this is a, amazingly a finer blow, a final blow of the Old Testament. The Old Testament begins with God's glory in creation in a garden, but not soon after that would man fall into sin. And here the final word in the Old Testament to these people is destruction of what lies ahead. They'd been brought back to their land after exile in Babylon. They'd rebuilt God's temple thanks to faithful preaching of Haggai and Zechariah. They were worshiping once again at that temple, and it may have been recommenced because of Ezra's own teaching on why it's important to do so. Jerusalem's walls would have even been rebuilt thanks to Nehemiah's effective leadership. Their circumstances all looked good, yet they were upset about life around them. And so they started, frankly, to do whatever they wanted, to live however they wanted. If this is how God is going to care for us, these unjust people still receive rain and food, then we're just going to do whatever we want, thinking that God's promises had slipped away. They, in many ways, had it all, just weren't acting like it. So I've titled this sermon, A Set of Understandable Rebukes. They're rebukes, but they're understandable as the Lord would unfold why he's doing what he's doing, why he's saying what he's saying to them. It seems like too many people want a religion that's sincerely private or purposely self-centered or even theologically vague. And that's in Malachi. It feels like today, doesn't it? Self-centered, private, vague, theological religion. People today pick and choose among a diverse mix of various religions and philosophies according to their own tastes and perceived needs. Yet God is so clear in his word exactly what he wants from his people and exactly how he desires to receive it. God inspired Malachi to write this short book, just four short chapters, because he was going to rebuke God's people for their wretched sin of worshiping improperly, of worshiping falsely. And it's a surprising way that he does this. Times were hard when Malachi wrote to these people because these people brought hardness onto themselves through their own selfishness. Even within this book, they were wondering if God cared anymore because good things were happening to bad people and bad things were happening to good people. And in this book, God raises what are called six disputes. 
conversations, if you will, where one is speaking to another, they defend themselves, then he speaks again, and then he explains the blow of his anger. And he does this in, I think, interesting ways. Uh, the way that you can see the layout of this, of this text, of this book, if you have a bulletin in front of you, the outline on the back of that, you're going to see that there's a beginning and end as one point, and then a second dispute and a fifth dispute as another point, and then finally a third and fourth dispute as another point entirely. This is, uh, in many ways, the Hebrew works in, in the prophets arrange themselves in what is called a chiasm. A chiasm is arranged like you and I might recognize March Madness come February or March, where there are beginning games, but really the, the one game they're all waiting to see is that, is that final between those who have battle royale to see the end. And so the way that this is arranged is there's a beginning and an end that Malachi has, has one thing in mind and then to where it finally emphasizes to us what's in the very middle of the book. So you'll see the first dispute, chapter 1, verses 2 through 5, how they thought of God. And then the sixth dispute, chapters, chapter 3, verses 13 through chapter 4, verses 3, the same thing, how they thought of God. The second and then the fifth and then finally the third and the fourth reach the climax of what ultimately God is rebuking them for. So the first point of this, you see this in chapter 1, verses 2 through 5, and then chapter 3, verses 13 through chapter 4, verses 3. This, this prophet, through the inspiration of God's Spirit, is looking at these people and saying, God's wrath will come upon you because of your indifference to God. They're indifferent to God. What Malachi is doing is he's exposing their worship they're being rebuked because of, how they, or because of how they regard God. Now, worship of God involves how you and I approach God. How we worship God comes from how we approach God. And we learn this from the beginning to end of Malachi, in this first and sixth part. We cannot worship what we misunderstand. We cannot worship what we discount. And we cannot worship what we disregard. You may have a great emotional weekend, you may launch out on a journey of self-discovery. You may even get in touch with your inner soul or your inner child, but you will not get in touch with God without approaching Him as He has revealed Himself. This is why it's so important for you and I to regularly seek the Lord through an understanding of what He has said about Himself. The study of God through His Word is so important to you as an individual Christian and to us as a church. This is why, if you're used to kind of the Protestant movement in church history, it is the recapturing of a pulpit in the center of a room where all truth comes from God's Word outside of that. This is why I kind of take somewhat attention to not move around within the pulpit, but actually allowing the Bible, who you can see right here, actually mediating the very words of God between you and me and us and Him. The understanding of God's Word is so important for the Christian's life Because without knowing God through his word, you are not worshiping God, even as sincere as you might think you're doing so. This is the point that Malachi makes right from the very beginning. We're part of worshiping God as understanding him. Look again, or look at those couple of verses. Chapter chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage of jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will remain, we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord says of the hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. 
They will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. God wants his people to know the truth about himself. He was great and sovereign, and he wants them to know this. Even beyond the borders of Israel, he wants people to know who he is. The Lord is no village God, no tribal spirit, but, his own cho- but by his own choice, he made Israel his own, and by his own choice, he rejected and even hated Israel's next-door neighbor, neighbor, Edom, who were the offspring of Esau. This was the first dispute that the Lord raised with his people because he wanted to ensure that they understood him. He is the one who they are reckoning with. Verse 5 says that he he alone was sovereign over Israel and beyond. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, we're certainly thankful that you're with us. And we, we hope that you would turn your attention to the same place we're turning our attention to. I don't know if this is the God that you expect when you come to worship in a church. But what the words are so clearly speaking to us is that you, you cannot be indifferent to what God is like and, and truly, honestly, think that you can worship him. Man's indifference is never by God's self-revelation. But think of it, your indifference shows a good, self-constructed, homemade, do-it-yourself God. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're invited every time our doors are open. But more than just joining us and fellowshipping and hanging out, we hope that you turn your attention to what God says about himself. Right out of the gate, Malachi, through a dispute, says that God is true. And out of his truth, in verse 2, he says that by his truth, he loves his people. His blessing and faithfulness isn't a result of their faithfulness. He says that they're the object of his affection and his love. And, And here's the point. God wants the truth about his universal greatness and unending love for his people to be known so that they would approach him rightly. And this is the base of true worship a heart's approach to an already supreme, sovereign, loving God to where followers or worshipers of God actually speak God's truth. We, we do this collectively when we sing out loud, when we pray out loud, when I preach out loud, because it's the truth of God going to the listeners or hearers of God to where the transformation of God's spirit actually takes place. Friend, he has revealed the truth about himself to you. Stop ignoring it like these ones have done. You have nothing better to do than to know God. And I fear that we are far too often lazy in our pursuit of the Lord. God is upset at at these people because of their indifference to him. If they would know him, they would never take their eyes off of him. But not just in this first part. He also brings this to their attention in chapter 3, verses 13, through chapter 4, verses 3. God confronts these people because not only are they indifferent, but they don't fear him. Look at at chapter 3, verse 13. It says, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, How have we spoken against you? You have said, It is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed, evildoers, not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Look also at chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, 
when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will, will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Throughout the scriptures, from, generation, from Genesis to the book of Revelation, we are instructed to do this primary thing. We're instructed to fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. We're instructed to fear the Lord. Fearing the Lord means having an ultimate regard for him. It means keeping our eye on him and giving our allegiance to him. And the reason is, is that he promises that a day will come when the Lord will divide people according to whether or not they have feared him or not. True reverence is a necessary part of the worship of God. And in your fear and reverence, it actually shows what you believe about God through your own life. Your fear of God shows itself through your repentance of your own sin. Whereas some people, they have a great fear of their past mistakes. They have fear of bad news coming their way. They have a fear of the ill regard that others have for them. They may even have a fear of pain that might come to them, not with disrespect or distrust or arrogance, but they don't fear the Lord. But Christians fear God. That's what it means to be a believer, is to be, complete, be in complete awe of the one who can save and bring judgment. He is mighty and powerful. And that is really good news when you're in him. And that is really bad news when you're in opposition. Christians fear the Lord. He is our Lord and our Father, our husband and our master. And so we worship him with fear, not with disrespect, not with distrust, not with arrogance. But we recognize that in our own sin, we can go to him because of our right fear of him returning to him when we sin for forgiveness and correction and instruction. I'm always amazed at at how some men who are fathers can be both very mighty and strong while also at the same time be very tender to where their son or their daughter, when they walk in the room and they say, "Is is it true what mom said? And they just shudder. But then at the same time, they can be that father to where when a child is in trouble or when they're fearful, they go and cling to their father. This is the same type of awe that we are to have of our Lord, recognizing that he does all these things. And so through two different disputes, friends, our indifference is a fruit of our lack of awe and reverence. And that can be countered by knowing God. So again, friend, know the word. Don't listen to people who allow you to just have an elementary understanding of who God is. Be out in front. Friends, lead your family. Lead your friends. Be the ones who is constantly coming up at a coffee table and making it awkward and saying, what have you learned about the Lord today? The second thing that these people are doing is that they're receiving rebukes, not only because they're indifferent from God, but also, secondly, here on your outline, they're actually cheap. They're cheap about God. They're cheap about God. Now, I want you to be introspective for a second. Do you think it matters how you worship God? Do you think it matters how you worship God? Worship of God, according to this text, actually involves what you and I do with ourselves. There is something that we are called to do when we worship God, and he gives us particularities of how we're to worship him. And so you shouldn't be led falsely astray by thinking, what, what, whatever matters is that the, insanity, in, that the sincerity of my heart is actually there. Two of these six shakedowns have the Lord teaching us through Malachi. They're about regarding our worship of God involving what we do with ourselves how we practice who we are, 
and what we do with what we have. Look at the, or gaze with your eyes, Adam, the second and the fifth disputes, verses uh, 6 of chapter 1, going all the way into chapter 2, verses 9, and then secondly, chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. Very often, believers think that our own sincerity actually protects us of any criticism. But that is not the case, according to God's Word. Now, I really like my wife. I also think my wife is really lovely and pretty to me. But imagine if I go home. I think Brooke's homesick today. And imagine if I go home and I just go goo-goo and gaga over Brooke. Oh, you're so lovely. You're so talented. You're so smart. Whatever. But the thing that I love about you, and hear this from the depths of my heart, the thing that I love about you is your beautiful blonde hair. My wife is a brunette. That would be shocking. She would wonder what I'm talking about. Maybe I need my eyes checked. Or maybe I have the wrong idea of who she is altogether. Friends, it doesn't matter how sincere I was talking to my wife as if she's lovely if I don't have a picture of her that is clearly and purely true. God cares not only about what we do, but about how we do it. And in these cases, these two cases, that'll be actually revealed to them, and it's revealed in different ways throughout all the Scripture, but in particular to this audience who would receive Malachi, their wrongful worship of God would actually be revealed in not only what they do, but how they do it through their giving and their sacrifice to the Lord. Their giving and their sacrifice. Now, in Malachi's day, temple worship had restarted. In part, people would bring their sacrifices and their tithes to the temple. That's what, in part, what it would look like to worship the Lord for them. And what Malachi shows is that they were bringing their discretionary income to the Lord and offering that to them, you know, those of which is left over, but also their discretionary sacrifices to the Lord. You know, maybe the, maybe the weak animal, it's not the great one, that's the one we bring to the FFA fair. But this one, oh, I'll give this. It's the thought that counts. It's still a cow. His rebuke was speaking to them and exposing that they were not giving him their best. They were leaving discretionary income as their offering. They were using discretionary animals as their sacrifice. And so in verse 6 of chapter 1, God says that they were actually despising him through these actions. They were defaming God through these actions. How, they asked. It's a harsh claim. Look at verse 7 of chapter 1. By offering polluted food upon my altar. They say, have we really polluted you? The idea that some worship is right while other worship is wrong, that, that seems strange, doesn't it? Friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I assume that seems strange to you because of just our culture of sincerity conquers all. But God actually demands how he's called to be worshipped by Christians. The idea that some worship is right and the other kind of worship is wrong seems strange, but in the Bible, God shows great concern for how he is approached and worshipped. It isn't enough to be sincere, because people can be sincerely wrong. We can sincerely misunderstand our God we claim to worship and what he requires of us. And in fact, God is so adamant about how he's worshipped that in the Old Testament, he set aside a whole tribe of people, the Levites, to actually teach the rest of Israel how they are to offer correct, God-honoring, God-glorifying worship. These Levitical priests, as they're called, these Levitical priests were to guard the sanctuary from unclean offerings. People were offering here impure sacrifices when God demanded purity. 
And the priests were complicit in this. Look at verse 13. Not only have they been overseeing things improperly, but they became complicit with it. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Apparently they thought, I mean, who's really going to see this? Who's really going to care? Well, they should have considered the fact that God actually cares, and he specifically forbade such sacrifices entirely in the book of Leviticus. Now, as an aside here, we have to again recognize that God has spoken to us. For you and I today, God has given us a whole counsel of his will, and we should never be in the position of discounting any parts, even the ones that are in black words. There's a movement today called, and it's not new today, it's probably 40 or 50 years old, it's called Red Letter Christians, where they say, we, we, a lot of us disagree on the things of old and even the things going forward. Paul was controversial, Moses was controversial. What we really need to hold on to is what does Jesus say? And that sounds really cute. And it's really heretical. Because what Jesus did say at the end of Luke is he opened up all of the scriptures, the writings, and the prophets, and he said, all of these things that we far too often discount, they're about me. So when these people are offering impure sacrifices, when they're being cheap with God, you know what they're saying to the world about that Christ? That he's worthless. Throw in the cheap animal. Throw in the leftover stuff after the Netflix subscription. What they're marveling at is the injustice that they've brought on themselves. In part, God was interested in the priority of the Israelites' lives. He wanted to know whether they were willing to bring God their best. And I expect we can understand this much. Yet God was also interested in teaching the people that a sacrifice for their sins must be perfect. Above all else, the Levitical sacrifices were meant, in part, not only to honor the Lord with their best, but to point to an ultimate sacrifice that was still to come, Christ Jesus, who was completely unblemished, who was a perfect Lamb of God. And you and I would have no hope, none, if the Father treated us like we treated the Father and just threw in the towel, was cheap with his people, or gave a sacrificial lamb that was impure. You and I would be hellbound if that was the case. How we worship God matters. And these people, it was revealed through how they sacrifice and what they give. We must worship God according to what he has said about how he should be worshipped. He asks us for our best as he deems best, and we should give our best by what he calls best. But God also deserves our all. Consider the, the fifth disputation. In chapter 3, verses 6 through 12, I'll read it in its entirety. For the Lord, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes, in your contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. 
and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord, if you will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the soil and your vine in the field shall not, bear, shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you'll be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Here the Lord continued his argument with his people over the way they are worshiping him, they were not only giving him not their best, they were not only, or they were also not giving him their all. God required that his people, what it looks like to give all of yourself to the Lord, God requires his people to repent and to change their ways entirely. That's what it looks like to give your all to the Lord, to repent and return to him, giving your whole heart to him. Remember the call of Joel. Rend to me not your garments, but your heart. Tear it off and give it to me. And God began this exchange by reminding the Israelites that he does not change. And the steadfastness of his gracious character was their only hope amid their widespread disobedience. So he told them, return to me, and I will return to you. That's in verse 7 of that chapter. Now, in this passage, the Lord specifically exposed their lack of repentance. You could do this in a lot of ways. He was exposing their lack of repentance by their failure to tithe. They were financially, you could say, worried, distrusting. So they're keeping a little bit to themselves because you never know. And he's saying, yeah, you're not giving me your all. They'd been taught from the example of Abraham with Melchizedek, from the example of Jacob, from the explicit teaching of Deuteronomy by Moses, to give annually, these people, to give annually one-tenth of their property or produce to support, support the Levites and priests who administered God's worship in the temple at Jerusalem. And here in Malachi, the Lord promised the people that if they would be obedient in this matter, he would bless them until there is no more need to be blessed. The entire world belonged to God, and as people were supposed to acknowledge God's ownership of everything through their giving and their trust in his continual provision. Their tithes, then, were what God used to teach them to worship him with their whole lives. So worship required more than singing songs or memorizing a psalm on their way to the temple. It actually required everything from them. So it is for us today. Christianity is not for people who want to select certain areas of their lives to subcontract or outsource out to God. You can have this part, but I'm really good at this or I really want to do this. You can have this too. You can have my kids, but not me. You can have my wife, but not me. You can have me, but not anything else going on. I'll pray, but I won't give to you. Christianity is not for people who want to select certain areas of their lives to give over to the Lord while they hold on to an overall direction of their life's business. God doesn't operate like that. Either he is the Lord of all, or he is not the Lord of all. And these people... They're thinking they're doing something partially, but what they're revealing is that he was no Lord to them. God has protected his people. He has brought them back into the land, yet these people continued to try to protect themselves by maintaining control of their wallets and bank accounts. I hope you see how this smells of distrust, where the eternal God asks his followers to bring a tithe of their revenue to him. And this is part of their worship. Friend, I wonder if you're tempted to give God less than your best. I would imagine some of you are former athletes and you remember what it, what it took, what it cost to give your best in a moment to the point where you were sore the next day, maybe 
in pain at that very moment, just exhausted by the end of your attempt? You remember what that was like? When God says, give me your all, do you think it's any less than that with our spirit? And he says, how do we do this? Through repentance and faith in him. I pray that our church would grow in faithfulness in every work throughout every year by committing of our resources to the Lord and his expansive work. As we do, I have no doubt that God will provide for us. I do not think he will allow his people to go bankrupt. And if he does, maybe that's for our good too, to remind us of the hope that we will have when everything will be gold and like diamond glass and all those figures that are in the end. I praise God for how he has seen this act in our church. Recognize that we're in a 60-something-year-old building and the roof is still here. We don't fear when it's windy. When it's going to be cold in a couple of months, it will be warm in here. Not warm enough, but a little warm in here. You know, you think of this, you think of how God continues to provide for his people through regular teaching and preaching within Sunday school classes or small groups or Sunday morning, how God continues that if you invest in his kingdom growing more broadly and deeply than ever before, that he just continues to overshower this expanse to the fullest. The worship of God involves what we do with ourselves, and nowhere are we called to be cheap in our adoration of him. Finally, we see that they are not only indifferent, they're not only cheap, but they are also reckless in their worship, and we see this in how they're reckless not only towards God and his covenant, but also towards each other. They're reckless. You see this in chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, and chapter 2, verses 17 uh, through chapter 3, verse 5. We finally reach the final of the tournament. And the structure of the book, I think, shows the emphasis of the book. This is always the case. One of the hardest things to do is when you're reading through the scriptures or trying to figure out what a passage might say, is you must devote yourself to what the author's intention, the structural intention is. What was Paul How was Paul trying to arrange his argument here? How was Moses trying to arrange his argument here? How was Malachi arranging this to to emphasize this main point? And think of it, you started out at the beginning, a view of God, and then a pursuit of God. So having the right awe of who God is, but then having the right action or pursuing the Lord to where now it overflows to how you treat other people. He's exposing how their worship was improper by their wrong pursuit of him, their wrong understanding of him, but then they're also, they're also being exposed by their wrongful treatment of other people. Worship of God actually involves how we treat other people. We show others about who God is in the way that we treat them. In the very middle of Malachi's book, that worship of God involves how we treat other people in amazing ways. Many people regard religion as a deeply private matter. They say things like, it's not about religion, it's about a relationship. And what they mean by that is, do not ask me about my relationship. It's between me and the Lord. They would never be asked to think about what they might think or what they might feel amongst other people. These are basic spiritual matters. To them, religion is whatever gives them peace, whatever gives them composure or a quiet sense of joy. Yet these conceptions could not be further from the picture that Malachi presents of the true worship that is acceptable to God. Look at the latter part of chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. It says, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless 
and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. Here, God tells the people of Israel that true worship of him is involved in how they treat their families. How they treat their families. Basically, he says that it's no wonder that they're unfaithful to God because of how, fa- how unfaithful they are toward their spouses. And he does this in two ways. First, he does this in verse 11 of chapter 2, beginning that conf- confrontation by he's saying, you show your unfaithfulness, just look at how the people that you are marrying. They are marrying people who do not worship the Lord. By command and desire, friends, God called his people to marry other believers. And for the sake of religious purity, in Malachi and in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, foreign spouses were drawing believers away from God and drawing them astray. And so like their fathers, they were marrying wrongly, and so God rebukes them. Your unfaithfulness to God's covenant is exposing your unfaithfulness to God. But the second thing to do, they're not just marrying the wrong people. The second thing that he exposes is that the Israelites mistreated their families through wrongful divorce. The people had begun to divorce their spouses, not by infidelity, not by abandonment, but just because they didn't like them anymore. Or even they hated them. They grew to hate their spouse. So they left, or they sent them away. The people had begun to divorce their spouses simply because they didn't like them. God, though, condemns this particular kind of divorce, one based on feelings of hate or feelings of apathy. And our own Western culture has wrongly, unwisely, and obviously destructively accepted the idea of a no-fault divorce based on merely disaffection. What matters is that we would be happy. And when God says, you're ruining everything around you, and you're exposing your lack of love of me. So God told these people that their worship of him included faithful marriages to one another. They were not simply to live self-serving lives, marrying and divorcing whomever they wished. Now, if you're here and you're a non-Christian, I do understand and I do hope you actually see how invasive Christianity actually is. It is completely invasive in your life. The true faith that God gives invades every aspect of your life your worship, your stuff, and even here, your relationships. God wants to come into your life and to convict you of the selfishness that you have practiced even within the relationships that you hold most dear to you. How you stand toward them is affected by how you stand toward God. Now, pragmatically, what does this mean for our church? I think for us as a membership, we must remember that how we enter and maintain our marriages is a matter of worship. In Romans chapter 12, Paul tells us that we are to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, something that would be holy and pleasing to God. And with our spiritual worship, we see this playing out. So I pray that our church, the gathering, that's what a church means. It's a gathering or an assembly of people who you are not just coming here this morning because it's easier to worship when other people are around you. You know, some of you might like singing in the car by yourself. I don't. I like singing around other people. I like being in a party with more than two people. You might even like coming to church where there are a lot of people. But the reason that we come together 
is not just to fill up a room, but actually to be reminded of who we are placed in the midst of, who we are to fight for and fight with, who we have covenanted with to such a degree that I see you not treating your spouse well, and I go up to you and say, and how can we pursue the Lord together? Or I see you going toward a relationship that is improper according to God's commands and say, brother, sister, as a family of God's own people, we have assembled together to fight for holiness. I pray that we would be an assembly where worship is promoted and fostered like this, not merely on Sundays, but every day of the week. And if Christians today can marry non-Christians or divorce their spouses while the church says and does nothing, the same destruction that shines through Malachi will most certainly come to us. I know many of you who have parents who have divorced only to have their church say nothing. Many of you have friends or even children who, though claiming to be Christians, freely date non-believers while the church says nothing. And according to the Bible, the way we form and keep our covenant families actually plays a role in how you and I worship. I've spent a little more time on this one because I think it's kind of the primary point of this book, how you and I are treating one another actually says everything about how we view God. And in this case, he's using marriage and relationships. How much more broad can you get? at identifying what is truly at the heart of the matter. But there's a couple of more features of recklessness to note. Look at, look at verse 17 of chapter 2. The Lord's dispute on them, telling us that true worship involves how we treat our neighbors as well. God has always been concerned about justice among his people, not, even, not just within their marriages, but also in how they treat those around them. True faith concerns you within a family and also you within a community. And in this section, the Israelites because they did not see wrongs immediately redressed, concluded that God, frankly, doesn't care. There's injustice going around, so they start living like God didn't care, so then they start living like he won't notice them. Where is the God of justice, they say. And the Lord answered. And this will be picked up by the gospel writer Mark, who would ultimately lead us and introduce us to the person of John the Baptist. But look at chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. God, where is your justice? And he says, it'll surely come. Where is the God of justice? He is coming. The one whom you desire, the desire of the nations, as the prophet Haggai called, is coming. He would come and he would die. We recognize in the scriptures on a cross, enduring the wrath of God that these people wanted to rain down on their enemies. Amazingly, ironically, not coincidentally, but for their joy, it would rain out on the one who would come. The wrath of God revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and the wickedness of men. God would satisfy the requirements of justice more than any of these disputes represented in Malachi could ever imagine. And the Lord gives several brief examples of how they're living unrighteously. Look at Malachi chapter 3, verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. 
They're looking around and going, I'm going to do whatever I want to do because God, if he's out there, is not acting justly towards his people. And what God responds to them is says, there will be a day when he comes against those who sin. And don't you know that these actions would have looked a lot like their actions? God worshipers must not practice sorcery or adultery. They must not lie or cheat their employees out of their wages. They must not oppress the, defense, the defenseless. God cares about how people treat others. A person who is indifferent to injustice should not pretend to be a God worshiper. How you and I act towards one another, whether cheating of them or cheating on them or even doing wicked things like sorcery, that reveals the God that we clearly don't properly worship. And God wanted his people to know that he is a God of justice and he will come and he will wreak havoc. If you've attended church for a while and at the same time have accused God of being indifferent to what happens in this world because of pain you have felt or pain you have seen, you would be in a good company of a lot of people around you. We far too often fall into the temptation by reading God through the circumstances that we live in rather than reading the circumstances through God. How could God let this happen to me if he really cares about me? Friend, you must pull back the curtain and take a larger view of what's happening. The problem that you feel is testimony to the larger situation you may have been ignoring, but God hasn't. He's seen here as one who is constant, never changing, always, always calling people back to himself, and that's exactly what the people in Malachi's day were asking, and perhaps what your heart is asking even this moment. Maybe you've assumed that since you have not witnessed God judging wrong, you might wonder if he ever will. Or maybe you've assumed that God doesn't care, leading you to not care. But I assure you, neither supposition is right, according to the scriptures. God, who was never required to care, actually cared so deeply that he sent his only son to take on flesh and die on a cross for the sins of people like you and me, so that when he comes again, you will not be in his sight when full justice will rain down. Sins that deserve his just wrath against us, sins that he and his amazing love took upon himself, God calls us now to repent of those sins and to turn to him so that he might grant us forgiveness and new life in him. God's action in Christ Jesus was actually the greatest display of love and justice that could ever be imagined, and it was told to these people that it is coming, and the hope that you and I have today is that it has come. So if you're a Christian, learn from Malachi that your worship of God actually does involve the way you treat others. Adultery is a sin against either your spouse or someone else's. Perjury is a sin against the person that you lie about and the person you lie to. Defrauding the people who work for you and their rightful wages is not just a legal matter, but it's actually a worshipful matter. Oppressing the vulnerable who have no power to protect themselves is also a sin, according to God's word. And if you think you worship God because you attend church or do a couple of actions and sing a couple of hymns robustly while your life is characterized by unrepentant participation in such sins, you are fooling yourself. And the promise of God's justice coming in the person of Christ will rain down on you when that Christ comes again. You are not worshiping God. So friend, heed the call of this text to return to the one who invites you to purity and peace. As the Apostle John said, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. 
For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So our horizontal relationships with one another testify either for or against the reality of our relationship with God. So in our church, we are called to hold one another accountable, to encourage, to instruct, and to rebuke one another so that our faith becomes real and visible in the way that we live. The love of God must show itself in how we regard and care for one another. This is why the the bulk or the foundation, you could say, of a church's membership is both a confession of what they believe, but also a profession of their commitment to one another. I'm sure some of you have gone to a Bible study where you kind of all believe the same thing. You know, maybe it's a interdenominational, intradenominational Bible study or whatever. Great, go. But at the same time, you are not called by God's word to hold one another accountable in that Bible study. So you could go there and someone might give you advice and you go, we're not really in fellowship together. In the same way, you might have a contract with this bro group where you guys get together, but you actually don't believe the same things. You don't believe the same things about God or Christ or the Holy Spirit. So how can you, in your fellowship, your bro code that you might have even signed at the bottom, bottom, how can you actually aim to aspire together towards godliness if you don't agree on God at all? This is why the foundational things of a church is both our confession of who God is, but also our profession of what you and I aim to do with each other about it in the meantime. I grew up in a church without membership. And you know what happens when people sin in that church? I mean, I'm sure some people help out. But no one has the right to do anything toward you or with you. Versus like me and my wife, we have a covenant together. So you know when I sin, she's going to call me out. And I'm thankful for it because I know that she loves me. We confess and we're in covenant together. So in our church, we're called to hold one another accountable. Rant over. The love of God must show itself in the way that we regard and care for one another. This is the kind of worship that's acceptable to God. There are no trailblazer Christians in the New Testament. God writes again and again to the people of God, the church of God in this particular place, the church of God in this particular case. There's no, there's no lone Christian. This is the kind of worship that is acceptable to God. Worship is not just an otherworldly nor private action. It necessarily involves how you and I treat both our families and our neighbors. Now to conclude bringing us to chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. The last couple of verses of Malachi, the last couple of verses of the Scripture in the Old Testament, in order to treat God rightly, in order to worship Him rightly, we must not only understand and fear Him, but we must also and fully put our hope in Him. The Lord instructed His people both to look back and to look forward. They were to look back at the law of Moses and count it as God's Word and obey it. As God has repeatedly done throughout this little prophecy, But they were also to look forward to a new coming, a preparation for the work of Elijah, where God employed his last prophet before John the Baptist to remind God's people of the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah, the same of the two who were on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. Ultimately, we see that as Jesus emerging as the point of there. Everyone seemed to go in, a glorious thing happened, but what was that exposing about Jesus? I'm the fulfillment of the law. I'm the fulfillment of the prophets, and so you should worship me. And Elijah did come. His name was John, and he came to baptize and to preach repentance and to prepare God's people for the coming Messiah. Jesus then declared that Malachi's prophecy was fulfilled through John the Baptist. And after reading Malachi, we should not be surprised that the first word spoken, inspired prophecy, after several centuries of silence, was John the Baptist 
when he said, repent. And after Malachi had ended the Old Testament with the word destruction. So, so through both John the Baptist and Malachi, then the Lord called his people to repent of their indifference and lethargic view of him and to remember God's commands by living them out, to put their hopes in him and his word, to put faith in his promises, to live leaning forward into the promises of God, to put their weight into the truth of what God has said. That's how you and I can really worship God, by living as if we believed him, by running with joyful abandon towards him, by trusting that he will receive us as his own through Christ. This is, authentic, this is the authenticity that we need in our faithful pursuit of the Lord. And I wonder if you've ever noticed that the last phrase in the book begins with the words, or else. The Old Testament began with a deadly choice in the garden. And now it ends by holding out another choice. Will we turn that turn from that fatal choice made by the first Adam, which had been ratified 10,000 times, 10,000 times in our own heart, or more specifically, both then and for us, will we turn from ourselves to the Messiah who will come? Let's pray together.